All right, let's finish up with Paradise Lost. Uh, Book 10 starts, and we find out that uh, when Eve thought that God might not have seen them, she was quite quite wrong. Line 5, it says, For what can escape the eye of God all-seeing or deceive his heart omniscient? So God has seen them, and he recalls the angels that were guarding paradise. Around line 17, Up into heaven from paradise in haste, the angelic guard ascended, mute and sad. So they come back, and God addresses them, starting around line 34. Uh, He says, Be not dismayed, nor troubled at these tidings from the earth, which your sincerest care could not prevent. So he kind of reassures the angels, uh, don't be sad, this wasn't your fault. Uh, Tells them line 47, But fallen he is, and now what rest, but that the mortal sentence pass on his transgression, death denounced that day. So God, you know, his the justice has to be fulfilled. The, the the prohibition was that if they ate the fruit, they would die. And now that sentence is going to be uh, given. And he asks, as we saw in, back in book three, God had a question, who will do this? Line 55, whom shall I send to judge them? Whom but thee, vice regent son? So he sends the, the son as their... Uh, judger, uh, which is nice for man. Um, and as, as Christ the Son says around line 73, the worst on me must light when time shall be, for so I undertook before thee, and not repenting, this obtain of right, that I may mitigate their doom on me derived, yet I shall temper so justice with mercy as may illustrate most them fully satisfied and thee appease so the son is the again they fulfill very kind of old testament new testament roles here god is saying that you must go and deliver the punishment the son is reminding that yes he's doing that but he is also one day going to be the one who removes the punishment from them so he comes down, and this is all taken, uh, a lot of this is taken almost sometimes word for word from Genesis, where he comes down, line 95, in the evening cool, when he from wrath more cool came, the mild judge and intercessor both. So again, the son is both judge and intercessor. He's judging them, but he's also going to help them out. And of course, Adam and Eve hide themselves. So the son calls out, Where art thou, Adam? Uh, and it tells them to come forth. Now look at how it describes when they come, uh, line 109. He came, and with him Eve, more loath, though first to offend, discountenanced both, and discomposed. Love was not in their looks, either to God or to each other, but apparent guilt and shame, and perturbation, and despair, anger, and obstinacy, and hate, and guile. So they're, they're coming, but they're coming reluctantly, and all of those negative things, all of those negative traits are there. And um, he asked, the son asked them very pointedly, Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I gave thee charge thou shouldst not eat? Now, I want to look at Adam's reply here and contrast it with the reply that Eve will give to the same question. Adam starts line 125. O heaven, 
In evil strait this day I stand before my judge, either to undergo myself the total crime, or to accuse my other self, the partner of my life, whose failing, while her faith to me remains, I should conceal, and not expose to blame, but by, but by my complaint. But strict necessity subdues me, and calamitous constraint, lest on my head both sin and punishment, however insupportable, be all dissolved, though should I hold my peace, yet thou wouldst easily detect what I conceal. So this is a very kind of, you know, self-dramatic, oh, should I take this all myself or or tell you who else did it? Well, there's only one other person there. It, it, even in announcing that, he's trying to make himself look good, right? And he says, and, uh, oh, well, I should do that. And besides, you're going to know the truth anyway. You're, you're God. So then that's all the preamble. Then he gets to answering the question. This woman whom thou madest to be my help, and gavest me as thy perfect gift, so good, so fit, so acceptable, so divine, that from her hand I could suspect no ill, and what she did, whatever in itself, her doing seemed to justify the deed, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. So notice all the qualifications here. It's this woman that you gave me, he's accusing God, Right, and everything she did, you know, seemed good because she was a gift from God. But she gave me, and I did eat. So it's this very self-justifying and uh, accusatory confession. It's it's not really a very simple or heartfelt confession. And the son really slams down on him. He says, "Was she thy God, that thou that her thou didst obey before his voice?" He says, really? You're going to say that to me? So then he turns to Eve and says, Say, woman, what is this which thou hast done? And now contrast Eve's response here. To whom sad Eve, with shame nigh overwhelmed, confessing soon, yet not before her judge, bold or loquacious, thus abashed replied, The serpent me beguiled and I did eat. That's her entire response. And that shows a lot of the difference. Eve does not try to talk her way out of it. She doesn't blame, really blame anybody else. She says the serpent beguiled her, but she doesn't blame the serpent. And that's true. The serpent did beguile her. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of feminist criticism of, of Paradise Lost. And you can certainly understand the the, the uh, feminist uh, attacks on Milton because Eve is repeatedly, and uh, the the narrator in the poem says that Adam is the superior and Eve is the inferior, and it, it's very stereotypical gender roles. On the other hand, I think anyone who actually reads Paradise Lost carefully can see that Eve is in almost every conceivable way superior to Adam. And you see that again here in the way that they confess, Adam with all his hemming and hawing, and Eve with her very simple and direct and honest statement. So after these two confessions, the uh, the curses come. And the first one, uh, line 171, God at last to Satan first in sin his doom applied, though in mysterious terms. So he's cursing the serpent even though Satan is no longer in the serpent. And he, he, there are two parts of the, the curse. He says, Upon thy belly groveling thou shalt go, and dust shall eat all the days of thy life. 
Uh, so he's going to not be a, you know, he's going to have a different m- means of locomotion. And then he says, between thee and the woman, I will put enmity. And between thine and her seed, her seed shall bruise thy head. Thou bruise his heel. And now that's going to be a, 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 an important part of the, the, the curse that Adam and Eve will come back to. Um, and then to Eve, her punishment, sorrow. I will greatly multiply by thy conception. And to Adam, cursed is the ground for thy sake. Thou in sorrow shalt eat thereof all the days of thy life. So these are the curses. You know, the, the serpent is made to crawl on its belly. And then there's that enmity between his seed and the woman's seed. Uh, the, the pain of childbirth uh, is multiplied for Eve and the uh, the toil and the hardship of work. Now, it's not that they didn't have, wouldn't have had children or wouldn't have done work before the fall, but now those things become painful and toilsome for them. But then after that, uh, again, we've seen the justice part. Now we see some of the mercy. Line 211, then pitying, how they stood before him naked to the air that now must suffer change, uh, he's going to clothe them. So their nakedness with skins of beasts or slain or as the snake with youthful coat repaid. Uh, so, it, it, uh, you know, Milton has some ambiguity there. Did he, did, were the, was there a sacrifice They killed a beast or did the, he just remove the, the animal skin and then it, have it grow back like it would with a snake? Um, and he says, but not, uh, but not only their outward only with the skins of beasts, but inward nakedness, much more uproarious, with his robe of righteousness arraying, covered from his father's sight. So the point is that the son does not just clothe them physically; he clothes them spiritually. His righteousness is a clothing that will protect them from God's wrath and justice. Uh, now, I've asked you to skip over the part, uh, next part of the poem where Satan meets sin and death as he's going back to hell and tell they, they're building the, the bridge that will uh, connect hell and uh, our world. Uh, and sin and death are then sent to um, uh, wreck havoc on the earth. But let's get to around line 415 where Satan arrives in hell. So we hear that uh, the other way, this is after leaving sin and death, Satan went down the causeway to Hellgate. So he's following this new road, this bridge that they've built down into hell, and specifically to Pandemonium. All, that's where all of the, the angels are waiting in and around the, the, the palace in hell that they built back in book two. And he sneaks in. He makes himself invisible, uh, line 441. Uh, he, through the midst, unmarked in show, plebeian angel militant of lowest order, passed and from the door of that Plutonian hall, invisible, ascended his high throne. Uh, so he kind of sneaks in, looking like a lesser angel, walks his way through and then becomes invisible to ascend to the throne. He's going to surprise them. Satan has a flair for the dramatic here. Um it says, down a while he sat, line 447, and round about him saw unseen. At last, as from a cloud, his fulgent head and shape star bright appeared, or brighter, 
clad with what permissive glory since his fall was left him, or false glitter. So he's still, you know, he's fallen, but there's still some of that glory, or maybe it's just fake glitter. And then they're amazed, you know, their mighty chief has returned. And he starts his speech around line 460, his victory speech here, uh, and says, uh, around line 466, Now possess as lords a spacious world, to our native heaven little inferior, by my adventure hard with peril great achieved. Long were to tell what I have done, what suffered, with what pain voyaged the unreal, vast, unbounded deep of horrible confusion, over which by sin and death a broad way now is paved to expedite your glorious march. So, now, as Satan's laying it on a little thick, there wasn't as much, you know, pain or suffering on this journey as we've seen. Things actually went kind of well for Satan. So he, he tells them about, you know, his journey and, and the amazing thing that he's, uh, uh, line 45, him, that is mankind, by fraud I have seduced from his creator, and the more to increase your wonder, with an apple. Uh, now, the Bible does not say apple, it says fruit. Uh, but in Latin, the word for evil, uh, malice and the word for apple malum are very close and so it's kind of a a latin pun that the uh, fruit of evil would be an apple Uh, that's a tradition that precedes milton Uh, again it comes from the latin translation of the bible Uh, but that's why it's an apple rather than some a banana or a pear or whatever um again the bible doesn't identify the fruit um and Satan notices the the part of the curse of the, uh, the the serpent, and he tells them what his part of that curse is. Um, line four ninety six, that which to me belongs is enmity, which he will put between me and mankind. I am to bruise his heel; he his seed when when is not set shall bruise my head. A world who would not purchase with a bruise or much greater, more, much more grievous pain. Ye have the account of my performance. What remains, ye gods, but up and enter now into full bliss? So he's saying he's rejecting this. This curse. Oh yeah, the, all this bruise stuff. Oh, who cares about that? That's that's a small price to pay. And. As it says, he's expecting their universal shout and high applause to fill his ear when, contrary, he hears on all sides, from innumerable tongues, a dismal universal hiss, the sound of public scorn. So instead of hearing them cheer him, he's hearing them hiss. Like that's, uh, that's again, hissing is a, a kind of a way of booing somebody. And he wonders a while, but then he doesn't wonder. Says, down he fell a monstrous serpent on his belly prone. And so he and all of the other fallen angels have been transformed. And this is a, a passage very much like many passages in Ovid's Metamorphoses where these kind of transformations happen. He's been transformed into a serpent. Um, it says, for now we're all transformed alike to serpents. So they go out and, and different all different kinds of serpents and different sizes and all of that. But all of these serpents come out, and then all of the uh, fallen angels outside of Pandemonium too turn into serpents. Uh, 
545. Thus was the applause they meant turned to exploding hiss, triumph to shame, cast on themselves for their, from their own mouths. So now that, you know, instead of celebrating, they, they're being punished. And the punishment goes on. They're turned into serpents and they see these trees that have grown up with fruit on them that are just like the fruit of, look just like the fruit of the uh, knowledge of good and evil. And line 560, they go to those and greedily they plucked the fruitage fair to sight, like that which grew near the bituminous lake where Sodom flamed. The more, this more delusive, not the touch, but taste deceived. Now that, uh, your footnote will tell you that the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were the uh, cities that were destroyed by the wrath of God in in, uh, in Genesis. And the there was a story, I don't believe it's in the Bible, but there's a story that the uh, trees that grew up around Sodom, they, they looked the fruit of them looked normal, but when you touched it, it turned to ashes and dust. And this is even more. It's not just the touch, but the taste. They fondly thinking to allay their appetite with gust, instead of fruit, chewed bitter ashes, which the, offend, which the offended taste with spattering noise rejected. Oft they essayed, hunger and thirst constraining, drugged as oft, with hateful hatefulest disrelish writhed their jaws with soot and cinders filled. So oft they fell into the same illusion, not as man whom they triumphed once lapsed. Thus were they plagued and worn with famine long and ceaseless hiss till their lost shape permitted they resumed, yearly enjoining, some say, to undergo this annual humbling. So the punishment again is this is very much like the kinds of punishments in the uh, in the classical vision of hell uh, and or in Dante, where the punishment is kind of an ironic uh, reenactment of their sin. So their sin was to make Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit, and now they by being a serpent. So now they become serpents and have to eat of this fruit, and it turns to ashes in their mouth, but they're still hungry and they eat more of it, and it goes on like that. Now, think about how different this image is from the first images we got of Satan in Paradise Lost. We gave those grand, epic speeches, and we've seen a kind of a consistent line of his character uh, by the time he got to Earth, he was still something uh, attractive about him. He seemed kind of a tragic hero. Um, but as he got on, he became more bitter. Every time he saw anything good, it just made him mad. Uh, he became completely uh, spiteful and vindictive. And now the last images we get of uh, Satan and the fallen angels are them transformed to these serpents who are uh, justly punished for their sinfulness. Uh, so this is the uh, this transformation shows us really their true nature, uh, and you can trace that uh, that fall of Satan in our estimation is in a way that the education that happens to the reader in Paradise Lost. Uh, we we, be, we may start out tempted and deceived by Satan, but by the end we see him as he truly is. All right, now the next section we kind of skip. It's about the 
the changes that happen in the the cosmos. The uh, the Earth is uh, turned off its axis. Before there were no seasons on the Earth, but now it's tilted its axis. So there are extremes of hot and cold. Uh, all of these other the, the animals have become uh, uh, no longer peaceful. Uh, all of these things are happening, and we can see Adam's kind of long speech responding to all this, starting on line 720. O miserable of happy, is this the end of this new glorious world, and me so late the glory of that glory, who now become accursed of blessed? So he's lamenting his fallen state here, um, and says, line 732, you know, we're supposed to increase and multiply. That's the command God gave them. Now death to hear. For what can I increase or multiply but curses on my head? Uh, or a little farther down, O oh, oh fleeting joys of paradise, dear bought with lasting woes, did I request thee, Maker, from thy clay, from my clay, to mold me, man? So he's in a deep despairing depression here. Uh, he's like, increase and multiply will only make things worse. And you know, come to think of it, I didn't ask to be made. You just kind of made me and now have thrust me into this world. And he says, um, inexplicable thy justice seems, line 755. Yet, to say truth, too late I thus contest. Then should have been refused those terms, whatever, when they were proposed. So I think, well, you know, actually, I can't complain now. I agreed to the deal, and just because it's turned bad on me doesn't uh, forgive me. Uh, and keeps talking and says around line 769, uh, uh, I submit his doom is fair. Now, this is very typical of Adam after the fall he he kind of talks in circles, and this is a very long speech, and it doesn't have the kind of nice, beautiful order that Adam's speeches had before, because again, he's fallen, and for for Milton, that means that his reason has been overthrown by his passions, and we see that dramatized here. Um, he says, line 775, how gladly would I meet mortality my sentence and be earth insensible. So I, I would be glad to die. You know, what he's saying, when are, when are we going to die? But he's worried about something. He says, line 783, Yet one doubt pursues me still, lest all I cannot die, lest that pure breath of life, the spirit of man which God inspired, cannot together perish with this corporeal clod. Then... In the grave or in some other dismal place, who knows, but I shall die a living death. Oh, thought horrid, if true. Yet why? It was but breath of life that sinned. What dies but what had life and sin? The body properly hath neither. All of me then shall die. So he's reasoning out something here. This was actually a position that Milton believed. He was again a um, he was not a dualist. He didn't believe there were separate spiritual and physical realms. So Adam is worried. Well, what if I uh, my body dies, but that some spirit part of me is still alive? I'll be kind of like the living dead. He says, No, well that doesn't make any sense. Uh, I'm I'm all one thing. So when I die, I'll actually be dead. When my body dies, I'll be dead. There's no spiritual ghost that kind of floats up somewhere. And that's what 
Milton actually believed about the the afterlife. Uh, that there, there was no spiritual afterlife. It was a physical one. That you know, at the end of time, uh, people would be resurrected and go bodily to heaven. Uh, but he, he goes through again. We won't go through all the twists and turns of his his reasoning here. But line eight thirty, he says, "All my evasions, vain and reasonings, though through mazes, lead me still, but to my own conviction, first and last, on me." me only, as the source and spring of all corruption, all the blame lights do. Um, so he is accepting some measure of his own guilt here. You know, that I can I can talk and about all this all I want, but really it all comes down to me. And he asks, line 854, why comes not death? So why haven't I died yet? And Eve sees him there as he says on the ground outstretched and comes to comfort him. And uh, when sad Eve beheld, desolate where she sat, approaching nigh, soft words to his fierce passion she essayed. That's line 865. He replies, Out of my sight, thou serpent! That name best befits with thee, with, with him leagued, thyself as false. So no wait. What happened to the? Uh, all of this is my fault and, and nobody else's. Uh, that that left very quickly. Now he's lashing out and blaming Eve. Uh, he says, "But for thee, I had persisted happy. Now it's all her fault." Um, or look around line uh, eight eight eighty five. Um, he says, uh, "You were all but a rib, crooked, bent by nature, bent as now appears." more to the part sinister from me drawn, well if thrown out as supernumerary to my just number found. Oh, why did God, creator wise, that people highest heaven with spirits masculine, create at last this novelty on earth, this fair defect of nature, and not fill the world at once with men as angels, without feminine, or find some other way to generate mankind? So he's going to really, you know, this this misogynistic rant here. You know, you're, Eve, you're you're the the one who's the fault for this. You're crooked. You you came from a rib which is crooked. You're crooked. You came from the left, or in Latin, sinister side. That means you're evil. Um, you know, why did God even invent women? He should have just had it all men. Then we'd be okay. Uh, now, notice this is something that Adam says. This is not something that Milton says. Uh, I think a lot of the, uh, the the misogyny in the poem is from Adam, not from Milton. Um, and look at Eve's, uh, one thing that I think demonstrates that is look at Eve's reaction. Line 910, uh, she was not, repul- not so repulsed, even for all that, she did not turn away. With tears that cease not flowing, all, all and tresses all disordered, at his feet fell humble, and embracing them, besought his peace, and thus proceeded in her plaint. So she literally falls at his feet and says, Forsake me not thus, Adam. Witness heaven what love sincere and reverence in my heart I bear thee. Um... So even with all that, even with Adam lashing out at her, she's saying, please don't do this. I still, I love you. You know that I really love you. And she says, line uh, 924, 
While yet we live, scarce one short hour, perhaps, between us two, let there be peace, both joining and joined in injuries, one enmity against a foe by doom express assigned us, that cruel serpent. On me exercise not thy hatred for this misery befallen, on me already lost, me than thyself more miserable. Both have sinned, but thou against God only, I against God and thee, and to the place of judgment will return, there with my cries importune heaven, that all the sentence from thy head removed may light on me, sole cause to thee of all this woe, me, me only, just object of his ire. So she's saying here, you know, look, I'm I'm much worse off than you. You sinned against God. I sinned against God. But I also sinned against you. So I, I, I have it even worse. And in fact, it really should be me who takes all the blame. I'm going to go back to where God judged us and say, hey, you need to rethink this. I'm the one who should get all the punishment. None of this was Adam's fault. Now, that attitude is very different from the attitude Adam had. Again, Milton consistently puts Eve in a better light than Adam, uh, and you certainly see that here. Um, and, and she kind of brings him along. You know, soon his heart relented towards her. And he says, don't don't go and ask for all the punishment. And it says line 940, 954, I, if you know, if I thought that would work, I to that place would speed before thee and be louder heard that on my head all might be visited, thy frailty and infirmer sex forgiven, to me committed and by me exposed. But rise, let us no more contend nor blame each other, blamed enough elsewhere, but strive in offices of love how we may lighten each other's burden in our share of woe. So Eve really kind of brings Adam around here, and now he's saying, no, we're, we're, let's, let's help each other. And then Eve has uh, some more thoughts about this. She says around line 975, uh, From thee I will not hide what thoughts in my unquiet breast are risen, tending to some relief of our extremes. Um, and she says, Miserable it is to be to others cause of misery. So she's saying, picking up something he said before about be fruitful and multiply will only multiply our sinfulness. And she says, childish thou art, childish, childless remain. So death shall be deceived his glut, and with us too be forced to satisfy his ravenous maw. So maybe we could, if we don't have any children, there won't be anyone else who's cursed by our sin. And says, you know, if, if that doesn't work, line 1000, let us seek death, or he not found, supply with our own hands his office on ourselves. Why stand we longer shivering under fear that show no end but death, and have the power of many ways to die the shortest choosing, destruction with destruction to destroy? So she's saying we could just not have children live out our lives, though she points out that would be difficult because, you know, it's going to be hard to resist each other. Um, so we could just kill ourselves. But it, it, notice that the reason she's saying this is that it, it's out of actually good motives. She wants to prevent the, uh, the, the punishment, the curse that will happen because of them. 
But Adam, you know, kind of comes in and corrects her. Um, he says, line ten twenty five. I fear lest death so snatched will not exempt us from the pain we are by doom to pay. Uh, he says, look, I don't think that we're going to be able to get out of this on a loophole. But he comes back to that prophecy. You know, to crush his head would be revenge indeed, which will be lost by death brought on ourselves or childless days resolved as thou proposest. So our foe shall scape his punishment ordained, and we instead shall double ours upon our heads. No more be mentioned than of violence against ourselves and willful barrenness. So he's saying, look, we, we'll, and this is kind of slightly impure mode, we'll never get revenge on the serpent if you don't have descendants to crush his head. But now, having you know, worked all this out, they've reconciled, they've decided they're not going to kill each other, they're going to live, they have they decide to ask for forgiveness. This is around line 1083. So as we need not fear to pass commodiously this life sustained by him with many comforts till we end in dust, our final rest and native home, what better can we do than to the place repairing where he judged us, prostrate fall before him reverent, and there confess humbly our faults and pardon beg, with tears watering the ground, and with our sighs the air frequenting, sent from hearts contrite in signs of sorrow unfeigned and humiliation meek. So that's a very sincere uh, asking for forgiveness. And they go, and you'll notice the, the very last lines of Book 10 exactly quote what Adam said they would do, is exactly what they do. They precisely fulfill that. They go and beg and pray for forgiveness. And they admit their faults and pray for forgiveness. Now in Book 11, that prayer is heard, and but God says, yes, they will receive mercy, but they can't live in paradise anymore. So he sends the archangel Michael down to them, and he is going to uh, evict them from paradise, basically. Uh, but he tells Michael that if they agree to this, if, if they tr- resist, you just kick them out. But if they agree to that, then you can give them a vision of the future. And Michael does that with Adam. He gives him, a, first of all, he gives him a series of literal visions. Uh, Eve is not allowed to hear this. She's sent off separately, but he talks to Adam. Um, and it, th- up through the Noah's flood, he, he shows him the stories of the Bible uh, in visions. But Adam keeps misinterpreting or misunderstanding them. And Michael has to go, no, no, that's not what it means. Here, let me explain it to you. And then finally, he, he kind of gets uh, tired of this and says, let me just expl- tell you the whole story. So he kind of tells him a, 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 an abbreviated version of the rest of the Bible, and they go through through Moses and, and the prophets and all of that. And, of course, they end with the uh, the coming of Christ and the uh, the the death and resurrection, and finally the uh, the new heaven and new earth that will be. And let's pick up in book twelve, around line four seventy, where Adam responds to this uh, glorious vision of the future. Adam says, "Oh goodness, infinite goodness, immense! That all this good of evil shall produce, and evil turn to good." 
more wonderful than that which by creation first brought forth light out of darkness. Full of doubt I stand whether I should repent me now of sin by me done and occasioned, or rejoice much more that much more good therefore shall spring to God more glory, more good will to men from God, and over wrath grace shall abound. Uh, so this is, again, the idea of the fortunate fall. He's saying, yes, oh, this was terrible, but look, even greater good and more closeness to God will come of this. It's, I almost wonder, was this a bad thing? It's going to turn out really for the, the best. God's, going, God's providence is going to make it uh, good at the end. Um, and he asks about how, how after Christ ascends to heaven, how will he lead his people? And he says, well, uh, Michael says, he will put his spirit in them to lead them. And there's a long uh, part here where he's talking about uh, that there will also be false prophets that come in. And Milton is getting some of his digs in at the, uh, uh, basically at the Catholics. You know, Milton's a good Protestant and he's, he's kind of painting the Catholics as the uh, false prophets here. Um, but Adam comes back around line 557 and says, Greatly instructed, I shall hence depart, greatly in peace of thought, and have my fill of knowledge, what this vessel can contain, beyond which was my folly to aspire. Henceforth I learn that to obey is best, and love with fear the only God. Uh, so he's... Uh, Adam has really has learned his lesson. He's, he understands this instruction. And uh, Michael replies to him, line 575, This having learnt, thou hast attained the sum of wisdom. Hope no higher, though all the stars thou knewest by name. And here's that, that, uh, those questions about the stars that started with Eve uh, are referred to here again. Uh, and Michael reminds him, only add deeds to thy knowledge, answerable. Add faith, add virtue, patience, temperance, add love. By name to come called charity, the soul of all the rest. Then wilt thou not be loath to leave this paradise, but shall possess a paradise within thee, happier far. Now this is an interesting echo and inversion of what Satan said about hell. You know, which way I fly am hell, myself am hell, uh, that hell is a state of mind. Well, Michael is telling him that paradise and heaven are states of mind too, that if you have that paradise within you, the fact that you are physically in a fallen world won't really matter, that what matters is the inner state of your, your spirit, your soul. Uh, and he tells him to, line 595, go, waken Eve, her also I with gentle dreams have calmed, pretending good, and all her spirits composed to meek submission. Thou, at season fit, let her with thee partake what thou hast heard. So he's saying, I, I sent Eve some soothing dreams so she'll be calm and ready to go, and you can kind of fill her in on, on all the stuff I've told you later on. Um, and, but look at what Eve says when she meets him. This is uh, line 610. Whence thou returnst and whence went, I know. For God is also in sleep and dreams advise, which he hath sent propitious, some great good presaging, 
since with sorrow and heart's distress, wearied, I fell asleep, but now lead on, in me is no delay. With thee to go is to stay here, without thee here to stay is to go hence unwilling. Thou to me art all things under heaven, all places thou. That's very much like what she said, uh, uh, has said before to him, that he was everything to her. Um, and she understands, by me the promised seed shall all restore. So it seems that these dreams are not just as, as Michael thinks, just things to pacify her, but she has had from God dreams that directly inform her of what is going to happen. While Adam has had this lecture, she's had a direct dream from God about the same thing. And once again, for the last time, Eve really comes out ahead of Adam here. She's he's, his superior in almost every way. But let's look at the very end. Uh, so spake our mother Eve, and Adam heard, well pleased, but answered not. For now too nigh the archangel stood, and from the other hill to their fixed station, all in bright array, the cherubim descended. So he, they don't, they can't really talk. The Michael is standing right there with them. Uh, and Michael's a very intimidating angel. He's not the affable angel like uh, um, uh, Raphael was. And the other angels are going to their uh, uh, their station, um, and we get the last epic simile. Uh, they were on the ground, gliding metorious, as evening mist, risen from a river, or the marish glides, and gathers ground fast at the laborer's heel, homeward returning. So the image is the the angels are like the the mist on the, the evening mist on the ground, but notice they're at the laborer's heel, homeward returning. Well, who are the laborers in this analogy? Well, it would be Adam and Eve, and where are they going? They're going home. It's the end of the day; their work is over, and they return home from the fields. That's the image, and this is the moment where they're being kicked out of paradise. But the epic simile suggests that they're not leaving home, that they're going home, that that has been transformed. They're going to where they really belong. High in front advanced the brandished sword of God before them, blazed, fierce as a comet, which with torrid heat and vapor, as the Libyan era dust, began to parch the temp- that temperate clime. So they're fl- the angels' flaming swords are parching this uh, paradise. It's becoming like a desert. It was temperate before, but now it's parched. Whereat, in either hand, the hastening angel caught our lingering parents, and to the eastern gate led them direct, and down the cliff as fast to the subjected plain, then disappeared. So Michael grabs them each in one hand, kind of like a parent with two little kids taking them down. He takes them out of paradise and down the hill. Remember, paradise is on the top of a hill. And then he vanishes. There, there are no more angels in their lives now. They, looking back, all the eastern side beheld of paradise, so late their happy seat, waved over by that flaming brand, the gate with dreadful faces thronged and fiery arms. So think about that image. If, if you just heard that 
this line from Paradise Lost, the gate with dreadful faces thronged and fiery arms. You wouldn't think that was the gate of paradise. You might think it was the gate of hell. Well, that's what it looks like them now. They're leaving something, and they're not they're not afraid to leave it. They're glad to leave it. It's, a, it's not the right place for them anymore. Some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. So they cried, but they, you know, didn't, didn't last long. The world was all before them, where to choose their place of rest and providence their guide. They, hand in hand, with wandering steps and slow, through Eden, took their solitary way. So again, the end of this, and the you know the expulsion from paradise. You can see this almost all of the. There are many famous paintings in the history of Western art of the expulsion from paradise, and they're always kind of ugly and tragic and brutal. Uh, Milton does something quite different. This is like a vast world opening up before them. The world was all before them. It sounds like a wonderful beginning. And they're hand in hand, as they have been before. The wandering steps and slow through Eden took their solitary way. Uh, there's something very bittersweet and surprisingly hopeful about this moment. It, it's not a moment of, of fear and terror and despair. It's a moment of, of hope and promise and open horizons, uh, which is a wonderful thing to do with the end of a book called Paradise Lost. Uh, he turns that loss of paradise into an almost hopeful thing here at the very end. Um, all right, well, we will uh, leave Paradise Lost there. Uh, for next time, I would like you to read Alexander Pope's The Rape of the Lock. Now, the rape here does not mean uh, a sexual violation. A rape is the older meaning of the word, mean to seize by force. And lock is a lock of hair. Uh, this is a, a mock epic, and it was written about an actual event that happened. A, a, a man uh, cut off a lock of a woman's hair that he was uh, uh, courting, and it caused a great incident in society. And uh, Pope wrote a mock epic about it to kind of put things in perspective for people. Uh, so I want you to think about how this uses the conventions of the epic, and we've seen those in Paradise Lost, and there are some others from older epics, and uses them uh, in a different context. This is not about some epic grand thing like Paradise Lost or, or the, the, the Battle of Troy. Uh, this is about you know them playing cards and cutting off locks of hair. Uh, think about how he does that and how he creates the satire in that way. Um, also, think about the way that Pope uses poetic form. And I'd like you to read a, a, another brief section by Pope in his essay on criticism, and it's lines uh, 337 through 85. Uh, it's just about 50 lines. And he talks about how to use poetic form there. And think about, read that, and think about how he does that in the rape of the lock. He's writing in these heroic couplets, these rhymed iambic pentameter couplets, and he's a real master of that form. Uh, think about how he, uh, the way he expresses things, 
helps make the thematic points that he wants to make. Uh, All right, so we will talk about The Rape of the Lock next time. If you have questions, the email is drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Thanks for your attention, and we'll talk next time.